Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. I believe in the fullness of time that, that history holds Donald Trump accountable. And Mike Pence might be part of that history. As for the first time, a former vice president is being compelled to give potentially damaging testimony against the president he once served. A judge has ordered Pence to testify before the federal grand jury investigating efforts by former President Donald Trump and his allies to overturn the results of the 2020 election. Pence vowed last month to fight the special counsel's subpoena all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, but on Wednesday said he hadn't made a decision yet on whether to appeal the order. We'll be speaking with our attorneys in Washington before the end of the week and sorting out uh, what our next steps are. Uh, I obviously have nothing to hide. I've, I've been speaking about those uh, days, uh, writing about them extensively over the last two years. But for me, it was important that we stand on that constitutional principle. My guest is Victoria Norse, a professor at Georgetown Law School who formerly served as chief counsel to then-Vice President Joe Biden. Pence had raised a novel challenge to the subpoena based on the speech or debate clause. Tell us about that challenge. The Constitution speech and debate clause says that you cannot be questioned for anything you say while you're in Congress. So it protects members of the House or the Senate from being arrested because they said something terrible, which is what happened in merry old England and in France before actually they tried to do this to some extent at the beginning of our constitutional history. But the idea was that you didn't want anyone like a king questioning someone for what they said because it would inhibit them. It would chill their speech about what was important. So if the parliament wanted to say something bad about the king, then the king could just go arrest them. And so in our constitution, we wanted to distance ourselves from that practice. And so he said that members cannot be prosecuted for anything they say while they are members. Now, Vice President Pence is arguing that he was the president of the Senate at the time of the electoral count, and therefore that is a legislative role for the vice president, the unique role under the Constitution. And he is arguing that given that he was performing that unique role, anything that he said during that period should not be used in any other prosecution. And the speech and debate clause does provide very broad support for members regarding the use of their statements in other criminal prosecutions. Nevertheless, you know, not all of his statements were actually regarding what the Electoral Count Act was doing, and that will matter in the ultimate determination about what he testified to. The judge did recognize the speech and debate clause applies to the vice president when he's acting as president of the Senate, so Pence won't have to answer questions relating to that. Yes, because you got to look at the facts of what was going on here. 
you know, I was a commentator on the January 6th hearings because I'm an expert in Congress. And if you watch the hearings, you'll see that the vice president was ushered out of his hiding place in the Senate. They went down to what I think is a basement, and he was in his car. I worked for a vice president, so, you know, the mini beast with his Secret Service. And there were pictures of them there. There were pictures of them exiting the Senate. So during the process of what was going on, he was not actually operating, in my view, in a legislative capacity when he was fleeing the insurrection. So there are things that the judge knows about various conversations that, you know, he made that I'm sure the prosecutor suggested were made. I'm sure they have phone records, et cetera, from the National Archives, because those are presidential records, whatever he phones on his official phone. Showing that he made various phone calls, but those phone calls weren't necessarily in the conduct of legislative business. So he's probably calling people from, and this is entirely speculation on my part, but about the insurrection. He he wants to know where are the forces. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. He may have called the president, and that might cause another objection. But not all of his activity was in the conduct of legislative purposes. You know, he wasn't calling anyone to order. He wasn't standing there with the gavel. He wasn't answering objections, which is what the vice president does in the House and the Senate. He wasn't acting in a legislative role for a good part of that time, which I'm assuming the prosecutor is very interested in. Why? Because the prosecutor wants to know what the thought processes were of the president at the time when he did not act to quell the insurrection. So let's say that there is a call came in from the president or he called the president and said, what's going on here? You know, why aren't you sending forces here, et cetera, et cetera. Would he have to testify to that call? Well, that depends. Okay, so there's also a claim of executive privilege that he might make. But, you know, that's in furtherance of a crime, a conspiracy to obstruct an electoral proceeding. So the electoral counting is is an official proceeding. And there are various charges now being made against participants in the insurrection. And if you agree to something like that and you take a substantial step or any act toward it, really, you're guilty of a conspiracy. And executive privilege does not apply to crime. So that's really what's going to go on if there's a specific phone call to the president. I think the prosecutor also doesn't necessarily want that. If I were Pence and I'm just, again, speculation... And I'm sitting there in the basement, I'm assuming it's a basement, with my Secret Service and my daughter and a few other friends or whoever was in with him. I'm worried for my own life and I'm worried for my country. I'm not necessarily calling someone who told me all sorts of bad things on the phone earlier mm-hmm. that day. <laughs> but um, I think that they had, had divided on this issue quite sharply in the weeks before. And he had his counsel take their position. And he was firm in what he was going to do. He wasn't going to invoke the 12th Amendment and violate the statute and all of the things he would have had to do to change the electoral count. And given that, I expect that you would see him calling, you know, perhaps DOD or, you know, assuming the role of the president, which is what a vice president is trained to do, which is in an emergency, they take control. And, you know, any patriot would call the DOT or the National Guard, or, I mean, everybody else was. Nancy Pelosi was calling when the Virginia governor was on the line with somebody else, and Muriel Bowser. So I would assume that he made those kinds of calls, and that those kinds of calls, since they're not in the course of his official duties as president of the Senate, are things that he could testify to. But I assume that what the special counsel is interested in is his calls with the president. 
Yeah, or the president's aides. And some of them have already been directed, Mark Meadows has already been directed to testify because of the relationship to a crime. Okay, so ordinarily, a vice president cannot be compelled to testify about his conversations with the president because of this notion that there's an executive privilege around the close people to the president. That can be overcome in a court of law if there's a special need for it. But it also can be overcome, and this was the Nixon case. It's not absolute. There's never an absolute executive privilege, particularly not an absolute privilege when there's a crime. I mean, it disappears. So, and this was the case with Nixon, who ordered a burglary, right? We're in a similar situation here, which is to say that perhaps Pence called Meadows, in which case that would be relevant. Meadows himself, I think, is going to testify again to what happened in those conversations or other people, the Secret Service, that might be relevant. And, you know, we don't know. But I assume that what's going on here is the same thing that's gone on with some of these other claims of executive privilege, which during the impeachment, which I wrote a book about for law students, uh, were wildly exaggerated. I mean, the Nixon case is the only case we really have. But it is clear on one thing. If the president is implicated in a crime, right, he has to testify. And that's why Nixon released the tape because the Watergate burglars demanded that they be handed over, and the, the Supreme Court of the United States said yes. Because for the pursuit of justice, you're going to send these people away to jail. The president's not above the law. They reaffirmed that in Clinton on his impeachment. Even though this court is not exactly, you know, has changed dramatically, I don't see them as undermining that very basic principle that executive privilege or even the speech and debate clause goes away when there's a crime. And as I say, most of what they're interested in is not, in my view, not statements that were made during the official proceeding, but perhaps before and after. As far as executive privilege, Trump's legal team separately made objections to the subpoena on executive privilege grounds, and the judge completely rejected those. Can Pence still make executive privilege claims in response to specific questions? He can try, but it'll basically be eliminated, as I said, because it's associated with crime, and that's already been litigated in the Meadows case. So if it's related to a crime, there is no executive privilege. The the president doesn't have a privilege to commit a crime against the government. This is a crime, not just a burglary, like an ordinary crime. This is a crime to halt the proceedings of the United States in electing a president during January 6th. So it's a very serious crime. And, you know, if a court ordered Nixon to release his case, I don't see why the court wouldn't find that as controlling precedent. Pence, you know, has spoken extensively about Trump's pressure campaign to get him to try to reject the electoral count. And even a book, I would have thought that there was sort of a waiver of any kind of claim because he's already spoken so much about it. Well, waiver relates to the specific time and the specific content. So they could argue that other things that he said, let's say, when he was in the basement, which he hasn't revealed, as far as I know, I haven't read that book, so you'll have to correct me if I'm wrong. I haven't read that book either. Okay. So, (laughs) um, you know, the only reason he's raising the privilege is he doesn't want to testify, I mean, which is interesting, I mean, to me. If I were him, I'd just go in there and testify. Now, obviously... Some people have had some interest in, you know, some lawyers have said, well, my client is the institution. And, you know, he doesn't want to pit vice presidents against presidents. That's true. Vice presidents should feel very free to give, of all people, forget about the staff, you know, of all people, clear statements to the president. And they, they shouldn't be open, in my view. But this is a crime. That's the big difference here. So 
let's say that a vice president told the president, oh, well, you know, I think the Supreme Court's going to strike that down. My lawyers are telling me that. Well, you don't want that revealed because it looks like they're undivided about their litigation strategy, right? But no one really knows. They're just hypothesizing. So that's certainly fair game to keep within the confines of executive privilege and the vice president's dissenting role in the administration, which is to say, no, Biden always wanted to be the last person in the room with President Obama because he wanted to say, look, the staff is telling you X, Y, and Z, and I'm telling you, based on my experience of 30 years in Washington, that's not going to happen. And that seems to me something that is important of all of the staff privileges for executive privilege. But we don't know the precise statements that the prosecutor's looking for. I expect it's during the time when the former occupant of the office did nothing to quell the insurrection, sat watching the television, according to the J6 hearing. He's going to want to know what Pence was talking about. And if he hasn't said those openly and hasn't said anything about those particular conversations, then he hasn't waived the privilege. The thing is that the privilege is just not applicable because he's not operating in a legislative capacity. And even if he were operating in an executive capacity, in advising the president. He can't do that when it's concerning a crime. When he filed the objection to the subpoena, he said that he would take this to the Supreme Court. Now he's saying they're sorting it out and reviewing whether or not they're going to appeal. Do you think an appeal to the Supreme Court would be advantageous to him? It would certainly delay things. Well, if delay is in his interest, he can do it. I mean, it would be interesting to see what they would say about this. You know, if, if delay is in his interest, he will do it. And he might hope to get one or two justices. I mean, it's interesting. The court's a new ball game right now. And, you know, I'm out here talking to law professors about how new it is because I decided to read all 300 of the opinions they issued in 2020 and 2021. You did. Yeah, I have a new website for Georgetown. We're, we're tracking all their decisions. And um, they've changed a lot. And they're in the process of changing more this term. So uh, that increases uncertainty. And whenever there's uncertainty in the law, that's a full employment bill for lawyers, which is to say, oh, well, maybe they won't follow the Nixon case. They have departed occasionally for him. Not always. You know, he might peel off a justice or two, because I think it's pretty clear. I think the reason that the appellate court is not wavering is because the Nixon case is pretty darn clear. There is one exception to all of this, and it is a crime to conspire to overthrow the electoral count. And there's really no two ways about that. And I think that they've been very inventive at legal arguments. I don't see the court wanting to take the case to tell you the truth, so they might just not take it. But you could get a dissent from, say, a Justice Thomas who dissented in a couple of the Trump cases. It's just a delaying maneuver, I think. I don't think they'll want it because they're going to do lots of big deals. You know, they're going to overturn affirmative action. They've got all these gun cases where there's a massive amount of uncertainty in the states about who can own a gun and who can't own a gun. And that's real on the ground, right? So they've got things they have to decide this term. I don't think they'll want to decide it. And so then it's a waste of lawyers' money, really. There's not much delay involved in denying a cert petition. The special counsel seems to keep winning these cases, getting people to testify at the grand jury who don't want to. How big a victory is this particular subpoena for Mike Pence? Well, a victory for Pence or a victory for the... Oh, well, tell me which side. I thought it was a victory for the special counsel, but, you know, who's it a victory it is a for? Victory for the spe- it is a victory for the special counsel. And I think it shows that the rule of law, when the rule is clear, applies. You know, I mean, this, the rule of law is a treasured 
cultural commodity of the United States. If you go to other countries that are full of backsheesh and, you know, kleptocracy, you realize that this is in our DNA. And I don't think any judge, to tell you the truth, a Trump judge or not, what, you know, on this kind of a thing wants to be on the wrong side of history because this is about history and it's about the future governance of our country. Whether Trump is indicted or not, he can still run for president. You know, I think there was a labor leader who was sent to prison and he ran for president and got hundreds of thousands of votes. And other members have been, gone to prison and run for the House. There's no prohibition on that. But I do think it will affect how history treats what happened on January 6th. And they've seen enough of, in the D.C. circuit, they've seen enough of these defendants. And they're pretty much familiar with the kinds of defenses, and they're not very good defenses. And I think they've seen enough not to be particularly sympathetic. Now, if you knew the law, you would expect that, you know, if you knew the Nixon case, there's only one case. You know, like you don't have to be a super expert to understand that you cannot, the president cannot conspire to commit a crime. And if, like Nixon, he aids and abets that, that he, then his testimony is relevant. So I would have said that Jack Smith would win, and I think I did at some point. But I think people think that the law is up for grabs now because there's so much uncertainty in general, not just about not about this particular doctrine. The speech and debate clause also adds another wrinkle because that's, if you're an expert in that, you think, oh, well, maybe it could apply. There's all sorts of reasons why you think it might apply, but it's just the facts that show you it doesn't because he's in the basement and he's not performing his legislative duties. There could be that wrinkle. And it's just the, the court has been doing things in general that makes people nervous about the rule of law. So they wonder whether Trump judges are going to give him a break. They wonder whether, you know, the law has somehow changed. And so I think it's, you know, the judges are really in an interesting place today because they are worried. And that general uncertainty is what has prompted Pence to be able to make these kinds of claims. So it didn't surprise me that Jack Smith would win. He also knows more than we know. So he knows the phone calls. He knows what other people have testified to that we don't know. And some of it may be particularly damning. I doubt it's in a book that Pence wrote. <laughs> so I, I think I think if these conversations, if he already knows one side of the conversation from somebody else and that person called Pence, that's relevant. And I think they wanted to try, you know, for all we know, it was some political gesture to be somewhat solicitous of the president. But it, as a ruling from a judge on this particular case at this particular time, it doesn't surprise me. Well, we'll find out in the coming days whether Pence will decide to appeal this ruling. Thanks so much for your insights. That's Professor Victoria Norris of Georgetown Law School. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. 
It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. The U.S. has taken its most forceful move yet to crack down on crypto exchange Binance Holdings and its chief executive officer, Chang Pen Zhao. The Commodities Futures Trading Commission alleged in federal court in Chicago that Binance and its CEO routinely broke American derivatives rules as the firm grew to be the world's largest trading platform. Joining me is securities law expert Anthony Sabino of Sabino and Sabino. He's also a professor of law at St. John's University. So, Anthony, what is the CFTC charging Binance and its CEO with? Well, June, it's a pleasure to be on with you today. And I have to say my very first impression, and a very strong one it is, is the massive allegations made here, the massive tome that has been filed by the CFTC. I mean that both quantitatively and qualitatively. First of all, this complaint filed by the Commodities Futures Trading Commission against Changpeng Zhao, Binance, etc., and also their compliance officer, Samuel Lim, or more properly, former compliance officer, is simply massive. It's 74 pages. And that's significant because if you look at it, when the SEC filed its civil complaint against FTX, that was only about 28 pages. The entire criminal complaint, and I mean the superseding indictment against Samuel Bankman Freed, filed by the Department of Justice here in New York, U.S. Attorney, Southern District, that was uh, less than a dozen pages. So the mere quantity of pages tells you a lot. Secondly, in terms of quality, this again reflects a very in depth investigation here with the most serious of allegations. And what struck me is this the Commission notes specifically many times that there has been, as they characterize it, a lack of cooperation, a lack of forwardness, of openness with finance. But yet, if you look towards the latter half of the complaint, there are very detailed allegations, apparently based upon transactions with certain trading firms. And the trading companies are not named per se, but they're called trading firm A, B, etc. And one can only surmise, and again, I admit this is a guess, but I would hope an educated guess, is that that information was revealed to the CFTC by virtue of the commission going after these trading partners, account holders with Binance, who basically were probably confronted with the choice either cooperate fully with CFTC or be implicated yourselves. And I think it's fairly clear that they got a lot of information from outside sources. But in addition to that, there's still a substantial amount of information that came from within Binance, although it was probably extracted uh, with a great deal of difficulty. But essentially what the commission is looking for here is at the very end, okay, the wherefore clause as we call it, the bottom line for the commission is this. They want to very much put Binance out of business within the United States, okay? They want an injunction to shut them down for their U.S. operation. They want disgorgement of all profits that Binance has made, which allegedly are the many millions of dollars. They want a restitution for customers, and they basically want to make sure that Binance, as presently constituted, cannot 
do business in the crypto space at all in the United States of America. So these are very severe allegations. And again, given the very international scope is painted so well by the CFTC in the complaint, Binance might very well, okay, continue to do business in other parts of the world. But if this comes to its ultimate conclusion, the way the CFTC wants it, all right, they will be absolutely forbidden from doing business, or let me rephrase, legally doing business within the United States of America and with, more importantly, American customers. So let me understand something. Is Binance allowed to trade in the United States now or with U.S. customers? Isn't that forbidden? That's correct. Okay, and that's the crux of the complaint. Binance is unregistered with the Commodities Futures Trading Commission. Okay, they have not filed and not made the appropriate regulatory filings or registration. They have not complied with American law, with federal law that regulates commodities. And again, crypto is a commodity here. So their transactions, if any, in the United States with American-based customers are absolutely illegal. But the crux of the complaint here from CFTC is, well, you aren't registered, you're not authorized to do business in the U.S., but you've done it anyway, which is why we now want to take steps to utterly bar you from the United States. You've been doing business here, you're not supposed to. So, A, let's get you out of the United States, let's exclude you, okay, let's exile you forever from our shores. But also, to make sure you get out and stay out, we want massive financial penalties. So, in essence, by profiting from these violations of doing business in America when you're not registered, licensed, etc. We want to get all that money back, in essence, to make sure that crime does not pay in this particular instance. So Binance, is it Binance or Binance? Binance? I always say Binance, but it, it could be Okay, I think it's Binance. I think it's Binance. I have to, you know, I thought I knew, and they were talking about it upstairs, and then I'd yeah. forgotten. Okay, so anyway, yeah. Binance. Binance, that's the way I think. <laughs> yeah. Binance but, said, but, uh, okay, so Binance said we've made significant investments over the past two years to ensure we do not have U.S. users active on our platform. But the CFTC said that Binance's own documents for the month of August 2020 mm-hmm. showed the platform earned $63 million in fees from derivatives transactions and that about 16% of its accounts were identified as being held by U.S. customers. Also, the complaint quoted text messages from the CEO. So it seems That's like right. the CFTC has yeah. evidence. Yes. And again, one has to wonder where that evidence has come from. One, for the moment, I would assume that the F- CFTC is actually within the law, so I'm not going to question the veracity of these allegations. And again, June, let me phrase it this way. These allegations, and we have to remember they're allegations, it doesn't become fact or truth unless it's proven in a court of law, if indeed that day ever comes. Nevertheless, just as allegations, these are a damning set of, of, of accusations here. Because what they're saying is we have this literal mountain of evidence, and again, this is why the mass of this complaint, okay, the sheer bulk of it at 74 pages, is amazing because, again, they quote text messages, emails, all these other, you know, chat rooms and stuff directly coming from Mr. Zhang, okay, sometimes referred to as CZ, the CEO, and also the former chief compliance officer, Mr. Samuel Lin, where basically they state that they are doing this in the United States with U.S. customers. Now, you mentioned and well said that Binance's position has been, well, you know, we've instituted compliance programs, et cetera. However, the CFTC has very stridently said Okay, you've told us you're complying, but the truth of the matter is what you say and what the reality is are completely different, okay? You claim to have compliance programs in, but you don't. And furthermore, even though, okay, you claim to be following the law, you still have never registered with us. You're still not authorized under the Commodity Exchange Act, the CEA, 
And the bottom line is, so without that registration and so forth, without filing accurate reports, you're at fault. Also what I found, and I have to use the word stunning here, I don't mean to be melodramatic, but I was <laughs> stunned by this, is the allegations, and again, they're allegations, they're not the truth yet, but it's alleged that, among other things, Binance deliberately and willfully, okay, and especially with Mr. Zhao as the, as the CEO and the company itself, deliberately and willfully sought to disguise American customers, U.S.-based customers, so they would not appear to be from the U.S. They apparently had a category of what they called VIP customers, whatever that means, but it also means that they essentially engaged in, to be frank, a subterfuge to, shall we say, inform or otherwise hint to U.S.-based entities, look, okay, we can't do business with you as U.S.-based entity, but you should essentially disguise your identity. And now they get into all the lingo of VPNs, virtual protocol network, whatever it is, okay, but that, that virtual address but basically hiding their identity. And also something that, again, if true, is quite damning itself is the allegation where the CFTC says that, and again, you mentioned the 16%, that's very significant, because when you're talking 16% of billions of dollars in trades, that's a lot of money. That is significant business. And it's been alleged that on their various financial disclosures, for lack of a better term, pie charts, et cetera, as we find, again, literally pie charts and graphs in the complaint, that U.S.-based business, U.S.-based customers, it's alleged they deliberately obfuscated that by changing, instead of U.S. or U.S.A., put it under U.N.K., and I don't mean United Kingdom, UNK as an unknown. So there are, again, numerous allegations of all these artifices, all these devices, where Binance knew they were dealing with parties in the United States, knew they weren't supposed to be transacting business for them, and they did it anyway. And then, even as a subset, but still damning allegations, they talk about the extension of margin trading, leverage, okay, which apparently Binance encouraged amongst all customers, but also particularly with U.S.-based customers. And again, that's something that is also extremely regulated. You and I and your sophisticated audience knows that if you're buying stocks on margin, okay, that's highly regulated by the SEC, the same essential principle applies to buying commodities, including crypto and derivatives of crypto, on the commodities exchanges. And since they did not comply at all with the rules regarding reporting of leverage, et cetera, et cetera, okay, that's a serious allegation. And once again, it just gets worse. It goes from the frying pan into the fire. There's the allegation, not dissimilar to what we saw against FTX, that there were violations, lack of compliance with the anti-money laundering laws, the AMLs as they're known, that basically are in place to make sure that terrorist organizations, criminal organizations are not transacting business, are otherwise honest securities and commodities market, things that have to be tracked to deter criminal or terroristic behavior. And again, Binance is way out of compliance with that because they simply don't have any methodology in place. Now, Binance certainly says the opposite. I believe one of their other high-ranking executives is quoted in the complaint as saying, oh, yeah, but we've been working on this for years and we've done this and so we're making progress and we're going to continue to do so. But in essence, the retort from the commission is, uh, yeah, that's what you said, but that's not what you're doing. So you're out of compliance and you're not even trying. You say you've got something, but you, your controls are inconsequential, ineffective, and we simply don't buy it. So you know what? We gave you a chance. You haven't fixed it. All right. So if you can't fix it, you're out. OK, we want to bar you from the U.S. forever. And once again, I think one of the most troublesome things here, June, is the fact that these folks have allegedly been doing business in the U.S. when they're not supposed to, when they're unregistered, where they don't file reports, where they don't follow the rules, but yet they've done it anyway. So they're already not supposed to be here. So in terms of like excluding them, it literally is the commission by virtue of injunctions, decrees, monetary penalties, 
They're seeking to expel Binance, if you will, from the U.S. markets forever and ever. Do you see this, the lawsuit being an attempt by the CFTC to assert its authority over the crypto trading world while it's in something of a competition with the Securities and Exchange Commission over crypto? Unequivocally, yes. I'm not faulting the CFTC for following their statutory duty to police the commodities market, but there is definitely an element of competition with the SEC, if you will. In fact, at one point in the complaint, there's some mention of ICOs, ICOs, initial coin offering. Now, in more recent years, especially as Gary Gensler has moved from CFTC chairman to SEC chairman, he said, okay, ICOs are security. So therefore, the SEC is going to regulate that. But once again, okay, the CFTC also would like to say, well, wait a minute. What are you selling in the ICO? You're selling or you may be selling a commodity that's our territory or turf. So definitely there is an element here of CFTC saying, look, crypto and crypto derivatives and so on and so forth, they are commodities. They're essentially of the same nature as, you know, pork bellies and grain and wheat and gold and silver, which have always historically been regulated by the CFTC or its predecessors. And therefore, it's our sovereign duty to regulate that. And again, I also note, and I found this interesting, that this case is filed in the Northern District of Illinois, in other words, Chicago. And that makes a lot of sense historically because the complaint specifically mentions the uh, CBOE, Chicago Board of Options, and the CME, Chicago Mercantile Exchange, because basically for all of American history, Chicago has been the heart of the commodities market in America. Again, that's not the NYMEX here or the former NYMEX here in New York. But the bottom line is, when there's wrongdoing in the stock market, the government goes to where the stock market is found, Wall Street. So that's why those actions, for example, FTX and SBF, Samuel Bagman Freed, those were venued in the Southern District of New York. But when you talk about commodities, the heartland of the commodities is literally the American heartland, the Midwest, Chicago. So that's why the CFTC filed it there, I have no doubt. Not to mention the fact that the judges, both at the district court level, Northern District in Chicago, and the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, which sits in Chicago, they have enormous expertise with respect to the Commodities Exchange Act and enforcing those laws and adjudicating those cases, so on and so forth. So essentially, the CFTC not only is staking out its own territory, making sure it is being assertive with respect to commodities regulation, of which they say crypto is a part of, they're also going to what in many ways is their home court. They're seeking home court advantage by going to court that they are regularly in front of, that they know the judges, so on and so forth. But again, what you're, what you're uh, indicating there, and I quite agree, is the fact that this is not the end of it. I would not be the least bit surprised to see the SEC also step in. And again, one hopes that these two agencies work collaboratively and not competitively, all right, to sort out this mess and basically protect the integrity of the commodities market. So how does any agency regulate Binance when the CEO, Zhao, has even avoided designating a corporate headquarters and said wherever he is, that's where the corporate headquarters is? So if it's crypto and they're not even located in a place, how do you control them? Exactly. Okay. And again, you've highlighted one of the more startling uh, areas of the complaint. And I found this absolutely astounding. Mr. Zhao, for example, okay, his present location is not exactly specified. The complaint indicates, okay, a belief that he's currently in Dubai in the United Arab Emirates. So he's beyond the reach of U.S. law enforcement. Okay. As you noted, and this is one of the keys to the complaint here, is that this entity, all right, basically claims to be international and it refuses to give an address. And of course, 
that is fatal to any attempt to be properly regulated and registered in the U.S. as a commodity trading platform, okay, as a swap exchange, so on and so forth, because you have to provide the most pedestrian information. In other words, say, this is where we are, okay, hello, CFTC, this is where you can find us, send your mail to us. If you need to subpoena our records, if you need to crash our party and seize our uh, records, this is where you're going to find us. We need a physical location. So the fact that Binance refuses and apparently works very hard, is very assiduous at working at making sure you can't find them, I think that speaks very much to the fact that they're trying to evade the long arm of the law. Okay? And certainly with respect to Mr. Zhao, I have no expectation that this gentleman will ever, ever spend five minutes in front of a U.S. judge or before the CFTC because he's simply beyond our reach. That leads to the very practical problem, okay, of then how do you regulate these guys? I think the purpose of this complaint, among other things, is not just to enforce the law, okay? Again, assuming these allegations are proven true, against Mr. Lin, the former CEO, Chief Compliance Officer, against Mr. Zhao as CEO, and against the entity itself. It's not just to basically exclude them, exile them from the U.S. I think it also sends a powerful message to anyone who has done business with them as an account, basically, and basically, because what it says to me, June, is CFTC say, look, okay, we're after Binance. If you've done business with them, you are next. If you have an account with them, we can find you because you are U.S.-based and we can shut you down. We know who you are. We know where you, where you live, okay, and we can shut you down. And again, even in the global economy that we have today, as we all well know, and we see this every day, is the fact that money moves globally. But one of the places, one of the stops it makes constantly is within the U.S., especially in New York through the money, main money center banks. So if you're going to basically shut down Binance in the U.S., that means they can't access cash in the U.S. or any other kind of assets. They can't transact any business here. And certainly right now, if I was at any, any bank, be it major, minor, anywhere on the spectrum in between, the bottom line would be, hey, okay, make sure we have nothing to do with Binance. And if we have a customer who's banking with us and they're doing business with Binance, we don't want to have these people's customers anymore. We don't want to be entangled with this mess. All right. So I think it's more a matter of, again, a powerful message to commodity traders, crypto traders. Okay, legitimate. And also maybe let's call them some uh, borderline people, people in the gray area, basically saying, look, okay, even if Mr. Zhao is in a foreign nation, we can't get him. We certainly know where you are, and we can certainly get you. So, okay, back off, leave Bina- get, get, get away from Binance, okay, because that's how we're going to shut them down, by basically excluding their customer base, okay, walling them off, if you will, fencing them off from, uh, from U.S. customers. Thanks so much for lending us your expertise, Anthony. That's Anthony Sabino of Sabino & Sabino. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? 
You get Our Way, a brand new show from iHeart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.